On December 5th, 1955, the Montgomery Improvement Association was formed by community leaders in Montgomery, Alabama. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was a new pastor in Montgomery, and he was selected to lead the MIA. Even at the age of 27, King was no stranger to political activity, but up until this time in his adult life, he had primarily been focused on his family and his strong education, and then joining a new church on his pastoral responsibilities. The MIA was formed just a few days after Rosa Parks was arrested for refusing to give up her seat on a public bus for a white passenger. The community leaders had gathered, and they decided to plan and implement a one-day boycott of the public bus system. This was to be a show of solidarity with Parks and to bring attention to their demands for change. Due to the strong participation in the boycott, the MIA then decided to maintain the boycott even longer. The boycott grew, and the impact was powerful. But so was the reaction from those whose own power had been threatened by the power of those who were seeking justice. Threats were made against the leaders of the MIA, and their coordinated efforts to attack the movement began to focus on King. Those who were opposed to the MIA's efforts tried to disparage King among his fellow black acquaintances. Lies were spread and accusations made. By the third week of the boycott, King was feeling the pressure, the pressure of those who were working against him, and he tried to resign from the leadership of the MIA. He was surrounded by support, and he stayed in that position, and the boycott continued to work. The bus company was crippled and losing money every day. Negotiations to a resolution started and stumbled, and then they were resumed again, and there was no resolution. The boycott continued. King and other leaders believed that the, the boycott was about far more than buses and seats and who could sit where. At one point during this time, when asked whether the boycott was part of something wider, King said, it is part of a worldwide movement. Look at just about any place in the world, and the exploited people are rising against their exploiters. This seems to be the outstanding characteristic of our generation. Those who were opposing King and the MIA stepped up their efforts to crush the resolve of the blacks who were boycotting the buses by making it impossible for them to make a living. Because those who were boycotting needed to get to work, the MIA organized and coordinated rides. Sympathetic white employers provided rides for their domestic help. The opposition appealed to the white employers to stop providing these rides. And then they began to target specific MIA members who were providing rides by arresting them for bogus traffic violations. This intimidation method appeared to work King was one of the first to be arrested while driving riders home from work. While he was released very soon after he was arrested, this traumatic event left King wondering whether he was up for the attention that he was garnering. He had originally thought that the reasonable demands of the MIA would be met within a short time of the boycott, and weeks later, he saw no end in sight. King was just 27 years old. 27. He had young children and a growing family. 
When King went home from his short stay in jail, he reached the breaking point in his fears and his questions regarding his role in what was still a new and becoming civil rights movement. He had continued to receive telephone calls threatening his safety and promising to harm his family. Late that night, that night when he came home and was at the end of his rope, his wife was asleep, the house was quiet, and King was about to go to bed when the phone rang. He was told by the voice on the phone that if he wanted to leave Montgomery alive, he better leave soon. King was unable to sleep, and he went into the kitchen, and he made some coffee, and he began to think about all that was happening. He thought about the difficulties the MIA was facing and the threats he was receiving. Reflecting on this night later, King had this to say, I was ready to give up. With my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me, I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. The first 25 years of my life were very comfortable years, very happy years. I didn't have to worry about anything. I have a marvelous mother and father. They went out of their way to provide everything for their children. I went right on through school. I never had to drop out to work or anything. And you know, I was about to conclude that life had been wrapped up for me in a Christmas package. Now, of course, I was religious. I grew up in the church. I'm the son of a preacher. My grandfather was a preacher. My great-grandfather was a preacher. My only brother is a preacher. My daddy's brother is a preacher. So I didn't have much choice, I guess. But I had grown up in the church. And the church meant something very real to me. But it was a kind of inherited religion. And I had never felt an experience with God in the way that you must. And that you must have it if you're going to walk the lonely paths of this life. That night, sometime after midnight, King received that threatening call. One of hundreds he estimated he received during those weeks of the boycott. I sat there, he says, and thought about a beautiful daughter who had just been born. She was the darling of my life. I'd come in night after night and see that little gentle smile. And I sat at that table thinking about that little girl and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from me any minute. And I started thinking about a dedicated, beautiful, loyal wife who was over there asleep. And she could be taken from me, or I could be taken from her. And I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer. I was weak. Something said to me, you can't call on Daddy now. You can't even call on Mama now. You've got to call on that something in that person that your Daddy used to tell you about. That power that can make a way out of no way. And I discovered then that religion had to become real to me. And I had to know God for myself. And I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I will never forget it. I prayed a prayer and I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. We don't expect these words from Martin Luther King. 
These words that we heard from Rogers earlier from Isaiah are very similar words that we don't expect to hear. Words of desperation. Words recognizing a calling, but also having doubt and struggle. And the calling doesn't come without the need to make a choice. A choice that says, yes, I don't get it. I'm at the end of my rope. And somehow, use me. And saying it to the one who calls us. That's a declaration of faith. Saying to this one who calls us, yes, okay. And it seemed at that moment, King writes, that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. I heard the voice of Jesus saying still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. Friends, the promises of God when we accept God's call on our lives are promises that God will make all things right. God will make all things right. This is the promise of God's steadfast faithfulness. God's promise that even in the midst of our struggles, the call for us to work in the world for justice, to fight against oppression, to stand up for those who have no voice, God's promise is that God is faithful and God is going to use us for God's work. Isaiah writes that that God will use the prophet as a light to the nation. That God will use you as a light in the world. King's recognition of a calling and the assurance that God was with him did not mean that the struggles ended. The threats continued. A few weeks later, while King's wife and child were at home alone, a firebomb was thrown into their house. And yet, King continued... King continued to find the ways that he was called to serve and honor God, a search that started when he submitted himself to God, seeking to do God's will. And this, over and over again, repeatedly became King's desire. King's commitment to a nonviolent movement toward justice and change faced the evils and fears head on, but he was not consumed by them. Indeed, for the next 13 years, King would continue to lead others and fight for basic civil rights. King would ultimately pay the cost when he was killed on April 4, 1968, on the balcony of his room at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Before he was killed, though, King would spend the rest of his life inspiring others and inspiring change. And, of course, his legacy continues. There's so much work to be done in this country and throughout the world 
to help those who are being oppressed by circumstances beyond their control. There's much work to be done to change systems that continue to discriminate against African Americans and other minorities in this country. There's much work to be done in order for us to continue to be that light to the nations that King was trying to be when in his kitchen in Montgomery he prayed desperately over the midnight cup of coffee, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause we represent is right, but Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. In that moment of vulnerability, at the feet of God and in the face of despair, God met King. God met King, and King responded. He was encouraged and renewed, and he spread the message that was on his heart, a message of deliverance. King's deliverance, though, it wasn't from the evils that threatened to kill him. King's deliverance was actually from the fear that kept him from taking action to confront the evils. King's deliverance was not from the oppression that plagued our country, a country that was founded on freedom and equality. His deliverance was from his temptation to escape from activism to the safety and comforts that he knew. King's deliverance and our deliverance, a deliverance that we find in Christ, is not a deliverance from the challenges of our life, from the pains and the losses and the struggles and the disappointments and the addictions and the illnesses and the diseases and all of the things that threaten to absorb us. King's deliverance, our deliverance, is a deliverance from the things that keep us from experiencing the riches of seeking to do God's will and living lives that seek to bring glory to God. When we truly experience the deliverance that God promises us, our response is then to go out into the world, to share the good news and to tell our story, the story of our transformation. I will give you as a light to the nations, God says through Isaiah, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. When our daily desire is to be doing God's will, submitting each morning when we wake up and each night when we go to bed, submitting ourselves to God, we cannot help but reflect this desire in our actions. As the body of Christ, we're all called to invite all that we encounter to come and see what God is doing. Come and see the God who loves us beyond comprehension. Come and see the God who formed us in the womb to be God's servant. Come and see the God who believes in us, who is faithful to us, who is walking alongside us, and who, as Paul writes, has given us each unique gifts and abilities to share the message of Christ in the world. And then having seen... We invite all who experience God's transforming love to tell their story, to tell of the glad news of deliverance in their words and actions. To come and see and then to go live it. This is our challenge. And it's our daily challenge. 
to, eat, to seek to understand how, like Martin Luther King, and how, like uh, saints like Carol Staub and countless other saints before them, and countless saints before us, and saints who will come, it is our daily challenge to seek to understand how we in our lives can live into our calling to be that faithful light to others, pointing the way to Christ. The challenge isn't easy. And the good news, my friends, is that we're not alone. We're surrounded by others who share this same call. This is why we gather as a church. This is why we gather. And it's why being part of a faith community is critical to calling oneself a Christian. And we're given the Holy Spirit, God's presence in our lives, to guide and encourage us on this journey. And we recognize that it's by God's grace that we are right where we are, sitting with the people with whom we're sitting, stumbling through on this journey together. By God's grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.